Hi, uh, welcome to episode six of Titanium Talk. We've had a bit of a break due to holidays, sickness, and all kinds of stuff going on over Christmas. Um, but I'm here, Jason Neen, and I'm with Brenton. How you doing, Brenton? Hey, Jason. Welcome back. Thank you. Did you have a good Christmas? I did. It was great. Got to spend a lot of time with the family. Good. Yeah, we did similar, but it was uh, over FaceTime due to um, my youngest daughter being sick, and so I was in hospital with her. But we managed to... Um, Managed to make it work with the technology and uh, had a sort of FaceTime real-time opening presents and, and all kinds of things like that. So it was quite cool. We, we made it work. That's good. Okay. Uh, we've got quite a bit to talk about because um, after the last episode, before Christmas, actually, um, you know, there was lots of things that coincided that meant we couldn't organize um, an episode before Christmas. But we've got some notes there. And some of that was some um, listener topics and feedback that we got via Twitter and via Slack on things that we could talk about. So that's going to be the first time we've covered that sort of stuff, which is going to be quite cool. But initially, we'll just talk about the um, news and updates. Two or three main things I wanted to, to mention here. Uh, there's been an official plugin released for Atom uh, by Accelerator, which is an extension you can install. I can't remember if we call it extensions or plugins um, in Atom. But you can go into the, uh, the Atom app and install uh, this toolbar and it creates a, a sort of mini version of studio that gives you the ability to select simulators and select deployment types and platforms and things like that and then and then run your builds and show you the console have you had a chance to play with that i haven't had a chance to play with it yet uh but i've talked to several people that have used it and it sounds like it's really great um it's a, a great feature for developers especially those that heavily use adam already yeah, I think it's including, it's, it's not only how, it's doing a couple of jobs or, or two or three jobs. It's got the, the build process in there, which is very useful for sort of picking devices and uh, picking simulators. So you don't have to go into the CLI or anything like that. And it's also, and you can do your own custom builds in there as well. And it's also got some auto completion and some lookup stuff that was, I can't remember the extension. I think it was titanium alloy uh, by Yoma Baby. I think it was that I've been using in Atom. And basically, they've they've used some of that functionality and included that in the plugin, so that you get autocomplete and you get lots of help as you're as you're writing code from the API, which is quite cool as well. I think it's built pr- primarily for the Accelerator CLI, um, but people have done some workarounds, whether it's creating custom builds or forking off the repo and creating a version that can work with the Titanium CLI as well. I think Accelerator are only going to support the Accelerator CLI through the plugin uh, officially, but Obviously, people can create their own versions, it's open source, um, and spin off a, a forked version and do what they want, which is quite cool. Yeah, that is awesome. It's nice. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been coming out of Accelerator lately, and there's just uh, one of the latest, but coming a tool um, supporting the third-party IDEs is really great because I know there's quite a quite a lot of developers out there that use Atom, so... That's great. Yeah, I think it's also got the split view. It hasn't got the the full split view uh, package capability um, that Josh Jensen did for Atom, which is quite nice. But you can open, I think it's got open related views as well. So you can be in a controller and say open related files and it will open up the other files that are, you know, in a split view based on, you know, controller view, TSS, and I think model as well. So it will do all that stuff, which is quite cool. But yeah, it's nice to get that sort of support. I know that there are plans to look at visual um, studio code as well. But it's definitely something that's happening and being supported. Um, and it's nice to give us that choice as to what we want to use. Titanium SDK 7 was released. This all happened before, I think it happened before Christmas. I think one of the biggest, um, and we may have talked about it, uh, but Hyperloop being included with the SDK is a big one now. So that 
that's nice that it kind of opens up that possibility for developers. I know there was a change. They've added a lot of features and a lot of capability in 7. It's a big release. So I believe uh, Android modules need to be rebuilt. Nothing has to be changed as far as I know. I think you just have to rebuild it. But um, a lot of the Android modules that are out there, I'm seeing, have already been rebuilt for 7. So that's nice out there. Yeah, the Hyperloop thing, I think one side effect or benefit of them doing that is that it also works with the TICLI now, I think. That is correct. Other items that we've had this week, there was a, a there's been a few blog posts, the typical sort of normal blog posts that are done in terms of mobile in the week and new widgets and things. There was also a, a post that I published yesterday, which is a sort of comparison matrix of cross-platform native solutions. So a bit of background on that. That has actually been drafted for quite a long time. It's been one of these posts that can be a tricky one to write and can be a tricky one to publish. And, and you're always going to get different opinions with these things. Basically, I've been drafting that and going back to it for, for several months, toing and froing, looking up things, checking with people, running it by different developers, um, including developers that, you know, were React Native developers, NativeScript developers, and Xamarin developers. And I guess with with any any post like this, because I've seen this sort of stuff happen before when, you know, Matrix goes up and there's either little mistakes in it or there's a that they're loaded in a sense where they're trying to say, you know, we're going to put features in here that we know other things haven't got so that we can say that we've got them and show ourselves to be better or whatever. But the driving force behind this particular one was just to try and answer the question because it is a question that comes up, you know, what are the differences between these different platforms or different tools? And that was really the basis of the of, of the post. So it wasn't done as a, you know, Titanium is the best thing ever. Obviously, I think Titanium is the right solution uh, for doing cross-platform native. Otherwise, I wouldn't be using it. But I wanted to make sure that it was done in a fairly neutral, had a fairly neutral tone and was trying to be as accurate as possible. There has been some feedback, uh, positive and negative, and I've taken that into account and I've updated it, as I said I would in the document. Um, so I've tweaked things, corrected things, added a couple more footer notes and some links off to other other sites and things just to make it clear um, how things work. So it's been an interesting one. Um, I think it's good to understand the differences. You know, there are these, all these solutions are out there. They all have different ways or slightly different ways of doing it, although they all, uh, I won't say suffer, but they all have the same challenges in terms of things like the bridge and over the bridge calls. And whenever you're dealing with a sort of, well, specifically JavaScript and native type solution, um, Xamarin works in a slightly different way. But um, yeah, it was a good post to write. And I think it's good to get the, the discussion out there and the comparison so we can we can go forward from there. Yeah, I think it's good to have a kind of a living document as well, uh, kind of show what the differences are and kind of highlight what some features that people might not know about right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, there are going to, there's definitely going to be changes to it. It's going to be something I'm going to be going back to as news develops, as different platforms develop, as, you know, owners change, as new features get released, it'll be something that I'll constantly go back and keep tweaking so that it's up to date. So let's get on to listener topics. So we had some good, really good questions actually um, via Twitter um, stuff that's come up in the past when I've been building apps. I don't know about you, but I've been caught out a couple of times with, and it's probably, it's not not, not stuff related directly to coding, uh, but we had some questions from uh, Michael Gangolf, who's a uh, Titan. Uh, I think I've pronounced his name correctly. Um, and one of his first points was, what do we do about app stores and how do we maintain those? Uh, how do we maintain apps and publish apps via the app store for a client. So do we use our own accounts? Do we use client accounts? Uh, I'll let you go first. So a lot of times I, 
I think it depends on the client's preferences, but uh, a lot of times the client wants the developer to be able to handle that kind of stuff. Um, I know we kind of talked about in one of the previous episodes about the Apple changes um, regarding uh, the regulations around certain types of apps. And I know they've recently revised that and said, yeah, everything's okay. As long as things are done under published under the, the account of the person who owns the content. So I think that's going to change some things in the future. I think there's going to be a lot more clients that have Apple developer accounts that might not have had Apple developer accounts before. So, so what that can mean is, um, the client may still have no idea how to handle it. They may not have any idea about publishing it, but they will probably have to hand add the developer as an administrator or at some level as a developer to their Apple account so that they can handle some of this publishing and do some of the maintenance that's involved in this. Yeah, so basically, um, just to recap on the whole, that sort of debacle from last year um, end of, uh, in December... There was a big thing. I'm not sure when they announced it. I think it was earlier in the year. Um, they were cracking down on these white label apps. So the white label apps are, you know, the sort of things that, well, there's two types of white label apps. Okay. So there's, there's white label apps in the sense that you'll get developers who will develop a, an app that can work for a particular industry. So, you know, a hairdresser or a, a golf course. Those are the sort of classic ones that you see. Um, so they've got a golf course app, which contains all the course details. It contains the, um, opening times it, it's a you know it's a generic app that can be tailored for particular different golf courses and then what a developer might do is they might you know have a sales team that go after all the golf courses in the country and try and sell them a version of this app um, that's one approach it's more a personalized approach it's more um, you know tailoring the app um, with some add-on customizations for that sort of um, for, for those sorts of clients so that's that's one sort of white label approach and I don't think there's ever really been a major problem with that approach because typically um, in the experience I've got with that is that you would normally publish through the, the, the client's account anyway. But there was the other the other white labeling approach, which were these online app building services. And basically what these services do is let you go on, you can create an account, you can say I want an app that is for, I don't know, a hairdresser. Um, my hairdresser service. So you click that app. What features do you want? I want a Twitter feed. I want a video feed. I want this. I want opening times. I want bookings. I want all these different features. Um, what, what's your logo? What's your color scheme? You know, you're basically point and click app building, um, dragging and dropping things in place. Um, and then you're hitting a publish button. You're paying a fee. Uh, typically these things were charging a few hundred dollars or whatever as a startup and then, you know, a monthly fee. And then your app is published and the app is published through their account and their service. And that's the thing I think that they were majorly concerned about and cracking down on because you had these app service companies with a, an app developer account, which had like, you know, thousands and thousands of apps in there or even multiple accounts, but all under that same, um, you know, main client or main, um, main user. And I think, you know, that, that, that discussion came out, that decision came out. It panicked a lot of people. I know there was a lot of people in TI Slack. Um, that were talking about, you know, some of the titanium apps they build. And there was a lot of confusion as well because there was an article uh, that was published where one of these services, the CEO, was going on about the fact that, you know, my service is basically going to be shut down. That's the end of my business. And this is going to affect other products and other solutions like, and they mentioned titanium, which then caused all kinds of confusion. I think it was a TechCrunch article, which panicked a lot of people because suddenly they're thinking, 
you know, basically you can't do stuff in titanium. But it's it it wasn't it was the wrong thing to say. It was inaccurate because if it affected titanium, it would affect any of the tools that work in a similar sort of way. You know, React Native, Native Script, and everything else. Right. That's not what Apple were trying to do. So it panicked a lot of people, a lot of people panicking on Twitter. I wrote a little blog post on Medium about it and tried to clarify the situation. And hopefully we managed to quell it all down. But, you know, there, there was the sort of, I think you get a lot of people who, and you see this on Twitter, I'm still getting replies now to that thread on Twitter, which says things like, oh, this is bad, or, you know, this isn't great. Because uh, they're not reading the articles. You know, they're reading a tweet that says, oh, Titanium and Accelerator are finished. Um, Apple have now stopped it. And they react and they don't read the articles and they don't understand and they don't bother to you know check up on the facts. So Apple then clarified all this uh, with a subsequent because then it you know did the rounds on the news sites and everything and so a, a qualification came out which basically said that it would be okay to use these services still. It, it was implying this it would be okay to use these services as long as the owner of the app is publishing the app through their own Apple account. So there's no reason why whether it's the golf example I, I talked about where it's a little agency that are developing all these template apps or this app building type service they can all work the same way they can do exactly the same job but there's just going to be some additional hurdles they have to jump through now because they will have to provide their login details or their itunes connect to whatever details so that the app can be published through their um, account instead i don't know if you've done any white label apps before i, I did a few a few years ago for a sports client um, and that worked that worked in a in probably a way that could have been blocked because I know that they had their own account and they had about three or four apps in there. But I know that I've done stuff for other white label clients where they've had their own accounts as well. So hopefully it's um it's not killed too many businesses or any businesses and and people can go on from there. Um, in terms of if you forget the white label story now and just talk about generally, um, the way I work is some of the very first apps I did. And I've still got one out there, actually, which I did kill. <laughs> I did turn off because I thought the client, you know, it's like five, six years old. The client isn't using it anymore. So I actually took it out from the app store because it was in my account. And then I suddenly got an email from the client saying, oh, can you put it back? Um, and that was <laughs> and that was an app for YouGov um, who do like surveys and things. And it was a really simple app, um, which if you download, doesn't really do anything because you need to actually use a link, um, use a URL to click. But basically, it was a, an app designed for uh, you're watching a TV show and YouGov will do a survey. So you click a link in an email, it opens the app and it starts the app up and it basically has like a timer. And it's uh, it's allowing you to um, say whether you're happy or sad at watching the show. So you have like a slider you can slide. And then there's some questions that come up afterwards and you can answer those questions and it submits it all back to the server. It was written years ago and I had to write a backend service in .NET for it and everything. Um, but that was published through my account. And I can't remember the circumstance. It was just one of these things that came up where we needed to get the app live for a certain time and they, they couldn't get their... I, I think what happened was they couldn't get their account sorted and they didn't want to give me the login details or give me access to it. Um, so I, we just had to publish it through my my business account. But that's not something I like doing anymore. It's not something I do do anymore. Um, there's too many complications, I think, with it. And and also the thing that always worried me was the responsibility in terms of, you know, if someone has a problem with an app or there's a, a legal issue with an app, I don't want someone's app in my account that could taint my account or, or cause me problems. Um, so what I tend to do now with clients is I will, when I'm developing the app, I'll use my own account um, because sometimes, you know, I've spoke to a client today, a potential client today, and she's got no, you know, no knowledge of app stores, no knowledge of accounts or anything like this. Um, so I'll have to use my account initially just to build stuff and send to her. 
But what I'll do in the meantime is is provide the links to sign up through Apple and sign up through Google. Um, and then ultimately, the app will be published through their account. Um, but there's a few things that I've learned and I'm still learning around this that are important. Um, and like I said to her today, the first thing is get the client. What I always do now is get the client to sign up a new Apple ID, uh, and a, unless they've already got it, a new Apple ID and a new Google ID for the developer accounts. And the main reason for that is many people can end up doing things like two-factor authentication because they're using their iCloud account or they're using their Google account or whatever. Um, and if they do give you those login details to be able to access the developer stuff, you have to jump through two-factor you know, hurdles of getting codes and things like that, which is a nightmare. Um, but also they're giving you potentially their personal email, you know, their personal email account or their personal iCloud account, which is not ideal. Now, obviously you can add people in um, and you can be invited into a developer account, but if they haven't signed up for a business account, they can't do that. Um, and because the business account signups with things like Apple require Duns IDs and all this sort of stuff and can take like a week or two weeks, I know many people have just gone and signed up for a personal account. And then, of course, they haven't got the ability to add people. So they end up having to give you the login details, which is not ideal. Um, so that's one thing. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing that I do. I didn't, I didn't know about the not being able to add people. to. I've only used the business accounts, I guess, but... I always assumed that you could add people even if it was a personal account. Yeah, so no, well, it's good to know. Yeah, they've, and well, unless they've literally changed it recently <laughs> over Christmas, but normally you can't. Um, so that's one thing. Um, now, yeah, wherever possible, I will try and get them to do a business account. I will get them to add me in as a developer or add me in as an admin because that's the other thing. It's just it's worth going through the permissions of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do because sometimes you could be added in in such a way where you can't create certificates or you can't create provisioning profiles or you can only create certificates or whatever. So, it's, I mean, most of the time I'll say, could you just add me in as an admin? Uh, add my iTunes account, add me as an admin, and then I can get in and do the stuff I need to do. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I've learned, um, I use um, Installer App to, to send out previews, which is effectively what App Preview is based on. It's like a white label version. Um, I don't know if this suffers from the same issue. I believe it would. Um, but I get a situation or I've had a situation in the past where I wanted to use Installer App to send out uh, auto-provisioning, uh, do auto-provisioning installs. And I use two-factor on my personal uh, iCloud account. And installer doesn't like that, so you end up getting you end up getting that thing saying someone's trying to log in at this location. You know they need to enter a code, and obviously that's not going to work. So what I did for that is I made sure that my other account that I use um, is not has not got two factor, so that I can then use that for the authorization um, if that's been added in to the relevant iTunes account. So I've got like a secondary developer account almost, if, if you want to call it that, that I can use that for being added into other people's accounts, which is. Uh, that could be the most frustrating thing. I mean, it's it's one of the frustrations that I know people have with um, the authorization code stuff with accelerator logins. Um, you know, if you're using someone else's AppC account or someone else's account and suddenly you're being blocked by two-factor stuff, it could be as frustrating as hell. And you've got to email them for a code. So one of the other things that I've learned is to to ask a client, and some of them aren't, you know, au fait enough to do this, but but some of them can is to set up some sort of mail rule that says, you know, if you receive any authorization code from Accelerator, can you forward it to me? Or if you receive a, you know, two-factor code or whatever, can you forward it to me? So that as those emails come into them, they can get forwarded to me straight away. And it's, it's I'm still trying to perfect it. You know, the ideal scenario is someone's got a team account, they add you in. Someone's got a um, an Apple business account, they add you in. A Google account, they add you in. And everything goes well. But most of the time you're dealing with people who, 
you know, don't understand this stuff. They don't use this stuff. They've never built apps. They don't understand developer accounts. And so it can be difficult for them to then work it all out correctly and give you the access that you need, um, which is why initially I'll use my own account to get builds done so that I'm just not blocked by any of that stuff and it can all be dealt with at the end. That's good to know. Yeah. Cause that anticipating the, the hurdles that are going to come with all the app store stuff. I know a lot of times we'll create checklists because even if you handle all the app store stuff, there's a lot of stuff that you'll need from a client, such as release notes. Yep. Um, a choice. And I mean, you can do screenshots, but what do you want screenshots of if they have a preference or description in the app or things like that? So, uh, it's good to give them that information and the, the stuff that you're going to request from them as far ahead of time as possible, because a lot of times uh, they'll need some time to decide that. And you don't want anything holding up when you're getting ready to go to the app store. Exactly. I mean, I've got like a standard, pretty much a standard document now for Google and Apple that I send them that sort of, you know, as we're nearing that time is like, right, this is what I need from you in terms of app descriptions, categories, um, you know, age targeting, all the sort of stuff that you want to go in that listing. Because sometimes, you know, probably 90% of the time, I can pretty much set up most of the iTunes Connect and the Play Store listing and then forward them the details and say, can you check it and make sure you're happy with it. Um, but sometimes, again, you're dealing with people who don't understand this stuff. They're not familiar with the way it works. And to be honest, iTunes Connect can be a pain in the backside sometimes in terms of how it saves and updates things um, where, you know, builds don't appear until you come out and go back in again and things like that. Uh, or builds appear in the list and then disappear. It's very frustrating. Um, so I don't want to confuse them with things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I know there are tools like Fastlane and TI Fastlane and stuff like that. I have tried to play with these things, but I found that just the, there's a lot of configuration that needs to be done that feels quite painful when you're doing it. And so I'd rather just keep it simple at the moment, but I might, you know, look at those things again. Um, there is a, there is a tool which I've got installed. I can never remember its name. Um, which is really useful when you get situations. I had a client who had an enterprise account. So this is really useful if you've got a client who um, they don't, for some for whatever reason, and it can happen, they don't want to give you access to their Apple account, um, whether it's because they've got other apps in there or security reasons, it's a corporate, whatever. So I had a client um, which was a car manufacturer and I did an internal app for them, an enterprise app, and I couldn't get access to their um, internal account for IT security reasons. So one of the techniques you can do there is you can allow them to resign. Uh, now I think Xcode now lets, I think Xcode 9 lets you do this. Um, I need to double check, but there's definitely a tool. I think it's called CodeSign um, for Mac OS that lets you do this as well. So what I was able to do was build um, effectively an ad hoc build, um, which is essentially an enterprise build as well. Um, I was able to do the build myself with like my own dummy certificate and everything through my account and then re-sign it with them or, or give them the file with instructions on what they needed to do. And they could then re-sign that. And that's what they did. They ended up taking the binary that I did, the archive that I did. They re-signed it with their own uh, provisioning profiles and certificates and everything. And then they published that themselves. So that's quite cool. So, you know, you, do, you can get around some of this stuff. And the same with... Um, with Google, you know, when you do a build uh, for Android, you get a, a packaged APK, which might normally use a, you know, keychain uh, to do the, the the signing, the key tool signing. But you also get an unsigned version in the build folder. Um, so it's possible to take that unsigned version, send it to the client, and again, they can re-sign it and then publish that themselves. So it's, there are workarounds. Yeah, that's. there's a lot of things that 
can happen with, and a lot of it has to do, like you said, with policy. Yeah, exactly. And, and if they, if they don't allow you to, <clears throat> sorry, if they don't allow you to get access to their accounts, then it's good to know the workarounds for a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things it's, it is, it's one of the things that I've learned to be really upfront with now in terms of, you know, do you have, you know, do you have Apple account? Do you have a Google account? If you do, you know, is two factor switched on all these different questions, because it can be really, really frustrating when you're sort of up against it right at the end of a project, trying to get this stuff published and you're being blocked by authorization codes or two factor stuff, or they're giving you the wrong password for a keychain or whatever. Um, that can be a real problem. Um, and it's, it's actually interesting how many clients don't keep track or back up all this stuff. You know, what happens with iOS? I don't know about you, but you know, what tends to happen is, um, you go into someone's account, you get added to their account, you go in, it's a fresh account. So you create a certificate for yourself. So you've now got a certificate. Um, you import that into your machine and it's now on your machine in your, in your key, key, uh, keychain tool. Um, so now you go back in and you create a provisioning profile. Uh, and you download that and you import that, you know, double click it, it's now imported in and you've got all that set up. What many developers still don't do then is they don't export that stuff back out. So, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, they've got that, they've created the, the certificate request. So they've got the private key. Um, they've now got all that stuff on their machine. They've then created a private and that this is the other thing, you know, if they've, if they've used the same certificate request to do like the distribution certificate, then these things are almost linked together in a way. So you don't want to be doing this with your own private key necessarily and giving your own private key out there. Um, so, you know, setting up different certificates each time, uh, each requests each time, creating the certificate, importing it in. And then what I tend to do then is I export them back out and then put them somewhere, whether that's in the repo, uh, in a secure folder or secure file or whatever, but, but give the client access to that because... It's not so much of a big deal on iTunes because if they lose their distribution certificate, you can create another one, um, you know, distribution profiles and things like that. That's not the end of the world. But on Android, I don't think there's a solution around the key store problem that if they lose the key store or lose the details of the key store, then my understanding at the moment still is that that's it. You have to publish a new app. Um, you know, you can't update that APK ever. Um, and it's amazing how many <laughs> will send you. I had a client recently and sent me the key store file. First of all, it's like, what's a key store file? Okay, well, you know, your old developer will have this. You need to find this key store file. So they get you the key store file, and then um, they don't know any of the details. They don't know the alias. They don't know the login details. They don't know the password or anything like that. And then you end up getting sent through this list of try all these different things until you actually find it. Um, so that could be quite painful. Yeah, I like Apple's solution a little bit better. At least there's, worst case, you can create a new certificate. Uh, yeah, it seems like a strange, it seems like a strange thing to do. I mean... You know, if your account's protected, if you can't get in unless you've got two-factor, if you, you know, you're creating a certificate, you're signing it, all this sort of security is happening. It seems fairly sensible that that would be the approach. Um, it's a shame that, because a lot of the time as well, um, I've seen, you know, key store files come through where, you know, the password is basically the name of the alias with numbers instead of letters. And it's just like the worst possible security ever. Um, so most of the time, these things are terrible anyway. Um so it just seems like it should be sensible just to be able to recreate it. But it's another thing to bear in mind. Yeah. I'll push certificates to, uh, like if you're having, if you don't have access to the client's account, uh, getting a developer, developer certificate, but if you're doing push notifications too, it's something that you need to make sure that you get those certificates and yeah, re-export that as well too, just because you're not going to be able to test a lot of the push notifications without, 
having a developer account that has access to that. Exactly. And the number of people that you'll ask for certificates from, and they'll send you the SIR file that they downloaded from Apple, um, which won't have the private key in it. You know, they won't give you a P12. They don't know what that is. And so you suddenly get the SIR file through and it's like, well, I need the private key. And then you find out, well, the develop it's on the developer's machine. Uh, and that's the developer we fell out with. And, you know, now we're going to need to contact them. And it's just, it's good that, that, that there is another solution around that. Um, it can be quite painful. The other thing is, is, um, interesting is that if, which has caught me out a couple of times, is if you've, if you're using a business account with Apple and you create a certificate, the certificate's in your name. If you create a certificate with someone's personal account, so you've logged into someone's personal Apple developer account, you've done the signing request. Um, when you did the signing request, you put your name in or the common name and all that detail is you. You then upload that. You then get the certificate back. You double click it. It goes into your keychain. Uh, you check for your keychain and you can't find the certificate because you're looking for your name and it will actually be under their name. <laughs> so even though you put your common name in there and your sort of details, the certificate is generated as their name because it's a personal account. So that's caught me out a couple of times. So you just, it's something to bear in mind when, when you're messing around with people's personal accounts. <laughs> okay. So some, one of the other questions was about, and this is an interesting one actually, um, was about uh, replying to reviews. So do you reply to, I guess this is more for people who are writing their own apps and publish them, but do you reply to reviews, yes or no? And do you care, more importantly, do you care about reviews for client apps? Some of our clients uh, reply directly to their reviews. And a lot of times uh, I've seen them, that it's kind of, was it, I don't know, maybe six months ago, maybe I'm off on that when Apple started allowing that. Yeah. Maybe it's been longer. It was but, iOS um, 11, yeah, I think. It was, it was around that time. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a new thing. Uh, you, I guess a lot of times it's for negative reviews. If you're apps getting negative reviews or, and you want to try and give the, um, feeling of connecting with those users that you have no idea who they are and you want to express your concern. Now I've seen really bad replies, um, not necessarily from my clients, but from other places where you go, it's just generic, like, sorry, you had a problem. Well, like, just don't reply. Um, um, because if, if you come across as cold and uncaring, you're just reemphasizing their problem. And then other people are going to see that and like, oh, that's a problem. But I think uh, reviews, but also when you're replying to reviews, it's good to note if you're going to do that, reviews can be modified. So if you are going to reply to review and the user comes in later and modifies the review, you might want to go in and make sure that that reply actually matches up with the review. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Cause it could look really weird. <laughs> Sometimes I've seen that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good, I, I think it's a good thing, uh, but it can be a lot of work once you start going down that road. Um, I think better is trying to make, I mean, for negative reviews, I mean, trying to figure out why you're getting them and trying to make the changes, unless it's a one-up, like you had a release of the app that just something unexpected went wrong. But if it's consistent, bad reviews, maybe for the user experience and maybe trying to get that fixed and trying to change it to make it a more intuitive app, then that might be better than replying to them, telling them that you're sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think as well, you know, the, the app store review process, and this is sort of linking into the stuff about worrying about reviews. Um, 
uh, it's a bit like Twitter. People have a tendency once they get behind a keyboard, um, and especially if they're behind some anonymity with a you know a username in the app store or whatever, to to be unconstructive sometimes with their responses. Um, and I know dealing with Google because Play Stores had this you know ability to review and reply to reviews for year for a long time, um, and it sort of goes back to that YouGov app. Interestingly. Um, because there were people in the in the beginning that were sort of complaining about that and moaning about that. And I think they were moaning about the size of it and it was only about 10 meg, but they were complaining about that. They were complaining about the fact that the links weren't working properly or whatever. Um, and you can you can end up getting some fairly you know negative reviews in the sense that they don't like the app or they have a problem with the app, but just negative in the way they write it. And it can be difficult knowing whether you should respond to some of this stuff. Um, I, I've only got a few apps, a couple of apps that are my own. Uh, that I did mainly for the kids, um, which I probably haven't had enough downloads to even be bothered to get reviews for. Um, I would probably, at this stage, unless it was a major issue, not bother replying uh, personally, um, unless it was something that I needed to, unless it was a common issue that I, I was seeing lots of people having, and then it might be something I might put in the release notes even or something like that. Um, but in terms of, the, the, this is the problem with it. It's the it's the value of reviews. And, you know, I don't know when I buy stuff off Amazon. I don't know about you. I buy stuff off Amazon. I'll, I will look for reviews. I'll look at some of the reviews. I'll look for the number of stars. I'll look for the, you know, how, however, if there's more one stars than five stars, even though the average is quite high, I might take that into account and I'll, re- you know, read some of the reviews before I maybe purchase something. But I do try and take them with a pinch of salt because, you know, people have different experiences and people can react in different ways. I've personally uh, never worried about reviews for apps that I've built. Um, and I've, ha- I've seen mixed stuff. I've by no means seen, I've definitely not been in a situation where the apps I build get glowing reviews and five stars and there's never a negative comment. Um, I think you're always going to get negative comments in some way. Um, but I've never worried about the fact that, uh, that, you know, if I publish, cause this is, can be a concern as freelancers, as developers, you know, you put an app on your website and you're really proud of it and you're really happy with it. And then a client or a prospect comes along and says, well, I've looked at the app on the on you know Apple and they've got negative reviews or it's got two stars on Google or something. I've never had that. I've never had anybody, you know, look that up and come back to me. Now, they could have looked it up, seen some negative reviews and gone, okay, let's not bother talking to the guy. So I would never know. But I've never actually, when I've referred, especially example apps, where I'm actually talking to the person via email, I've sent them some example links through. I've never had them come back and say, oh, I've looked at the app store and there's been a few reviews and people didn't like it, whatever. So I, in my experience, I don't think it really affects um, your ability to get work or ability to build apps because at the end of the day, I think most people know uh, and understand that you know people are different and some people have diff- different opinions on, on an app. Um, especially if it's a subjective thing, you know, they just don't like it for some reason, not that it's not functioning. Yeah. I think it's more clients that are like, they already have a team maintaining their brand image. Then, then they they might be concerned everywhere that their brand is mentioned of trying to control it, if you will. But yeah, I, I'm the same way. I, I always look at the Amazon reviews <laughs> been bit a few times or but yeah if you see a lot of ones even though the high and they're all the same thing you're like yeah maybe i'll look for another one but i don't know and and apps i mean maybe because the average price of apps is a lot lower than what i'm spending on amazon or what it is but i mean i'm like okay yeah maybe some people have a problem but i also know the apps are updated most of them i'll, I'll look 
a lot of times that what's the update history if they do have bad reviews if they're updating like every other week then most likely they're they're going to be working out whatever those issues were yeah i, I would hope yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's lots of factors, I think, to take into account. You know, you can have an app that has good reviews, but hasn't been updated in two years. Um, and I have, especially with paid apps, I think it's it's easier with free apps because there's just that tendency to click it and try it. Um, but with paid apps, you know, I have looked I, I have looked at the reviews. And, you know, if you're seeing consistency, if you're seeing someone saying, you know, app doesn't work, app crashes, uh, app doesn't do as it's you know supposed to. I know there was uh, what was it called? Notchless. Remember that when the iPhone 10 came out, there was an app that appeared called Notchless and it was, you know, get rid of the notch, hide the notch. Um, and I think it was a paid app. I don't think it was free. I think it was paid, but anyway, um, it was just funny because, you know, like a lot of these apps, um, it's a bit like the ones that claim to do theming of iOS when really all they did was, you know, had background images, and the background images um, might have little, might might have sort of shapes cut out around the icons, or a little shelf, you know, so it looks like the icons are on a shelf and things like that. So it wasn't really theming at all; it was just a background image, and that's pretty much what this did. This would take an image, a wallpaper image, it would uh, add, it would remove the notch by basically adding a black border at the top, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then allow you to export it and use it as your background image on your home screen. That's it. That's all it did. Um, which fine if if it gets allowed and it gets published and it, people sell it and you, great, whatever. But it was fairly disingenuous in terms of what it was claiming to do. And it was very clear from the reviews um, that it was it was not fake, but it didn't do what it looked as if it was doing, which was getting rid of the notch everywhere, which obviously made no sense. And anybody with any sense reading it, would seeing it would go, well, there's just no way that could do that. Because the notch just bothered them so much that you're going to spend all this time buying an app trying to do it too. Exactly. I mean, it's, <laughs> but, and that, that can be really frustrating. There's plenty of apps out there that have done that in the past. Um, uh, there were apps that do a lot of battery stuff seems to be the ones I came across when, um, not, not because of recent news to do with batteries, but just if you look up like battery health apps and things like that, they tend to be pretty, there's some good ones out there, but they tend to be very, very basic and all they're really telling you is it's battery level, <laughs> um, you know, battery level. And you've probably got three hours left of surfing or something like that. They're not battery health as in the quality of your battery or ha- if it's degraded or anything like that. Uh, but the way they come across when you read the descriptions and, and you know, there's definitely something in the way that they're done, which is, I don't, I don't want to say trick, but I'm going to, you know, they're trying to trick you into buying it basically. And they're trying to trick you into purchasing it. Um, having said all that, what a lot of people still don't know about is that you can get refunds. You know, you can go into iTunes, you can go into your purchase history, you can click an app and you can pick that you want a refund because of whatever reason. And Apple will refund you that. Um, I've, I've done that last year with a few apps, um, especially ones where I probably might not have done it if it was like a couple of quid just because I'm lazy and I wouldn't do it. Uh, but I think there was one I bought that was like 30 quid. It was an expensive app you know, it was a, pr- a productivity app and it just didn't do what it was supposed to do. And so I, asked for the refund and I got it. What was interesting was if you do it too many times, and I think I'd done it like three or four times, you get a new message when you buy an app that's like a temporary thing. Um, So when I then bought another app, it was saying, you know, you realize that by buying this, you can't get a refund for this. You know, it was almost like a, we've had enough of you claiming refunds. You know, we don't know what you're up to. Um, So, you know, you can't claim a refund for this next one. Uh, but it's only temporary. I think it only is only for a month or something and, and then disappears. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. But you can, yeah. If, you, if you're unhappy with an app purchase, 
you don't need to leave a, well, you can leave a review if you want, um, but you can just go in and claim the money back. Yeah, I think I did that, I don't know, probably it was a couple of years ago, but um, I probably should do it more often. But yeah, unless it's a really uh, more than yeah, just a couple bucks, then um, that's the thing I think, yeah. isn't it? It's it's that whole thing of we've been we've been you know spoiled in a way. I mean, you know, in the old days, uh, I say old days, like ten years ago, whatever. You know, you'd be buying things that were much more expensive, especially for desktop. Um, you know, some of the productivity apps and some of the apps that you could buy on the app store are, you know, really like Procreate and apps like that, where they're really, really good quality apps that are, you know, good enough to have been desktop apps um, and probably good enough to sort of command, you know, a really good price. And they're selling these apps for like three ninety nine or six ninety nine or whatever. And people are still complaining about it. I know. And too, a lot of times you look in an app that's a, I don't know, just a little bit in the app store, the same company or someone else will create a very similar app on the Mac app store, but that app will cost a lot. It'll be 50 bucks. Whereas it's $3 on the app store. I'm like, but I guess you just charge what you can get in the different app stores. But I'm like, okay, I can do it on my phone, I guess, even though I might have preferred to do it on the Mac, but for three bucks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had a, there was an interesting conversation with this person today about they wanted to potentially charge for the app. And I said, well, you know, you've got two approaches. Obviously, the easy approach is um, you just do a price for the app because that's, there's, there's no coding required. You do it all in iTunes Connect and you set it all up. The other option is you do it free and do an in-app purchase upgrade um, to add new features or whatever. Um, and it's an interesting one because I've, we've had, I think we might have talked about this before, but I had feedback from in Slack a long time ago talking about app store policies and things. Um, and I know a few developers who had said that, you know, they had an app that was a paid app. It was like 99p or 199 or whatever. And they had virtually no downloads. And then the moment they turned it free for a month, they got loads of downloads. And it's that just that blocker. It's that initial blocker of there's an app I did called WordTin for the kids to learn reading. And I think I put it in at 299 and then I put it down to 149. I think I've sold about 10 copies. <laughs> Um, and I'm pretty sure if I made it free, I would get more downloads because it's free. You know, there's, there's less of a, there's less friction to, to say, Oh, I'll try it out. And then maybe I'll leave it on my device or whatever. But if you've just paid 99p or 199, even though that sounds like such a small amount of money, it can actually definitely block people from making that purchase. They think about it more. Um, and that's why you see a lot of these apps. You know, we, we're seeing this whole trend now. Uh, well, there's there's almost like a double trend. There's the there's the first trend is all the in-app purchase games and and things where you buy. They're effectively conning you into buying into gambling and buying these tokens and you know gems and things like this. Um, but there's, it's really funny how there's a second trend that's happened where apps are being promoted for being one-off, either one-off purchase or you know just a one-off download, and that's it. Uh, I remember Apple did a promotion in the App Store, which was you know one-off purchase games. And it was that whole thing of this is a two ninety nine game or it's a five ninety nine game, whatever it is, but that's all you ever pay, and you're going to get that game done. And there's that because there's that reaction I think against these these apps because especially games. I mean, we had a situation last year where my son racked up hundreds and hundreds of pounds of um, of uh, in app purchases. Um, I got it all back um, because it was Apple's fault essentially. Um, what had happened was we'd blocked loads of stuff on the device that he couldn't do. Um, but there was an option to turn on Touch ID for in-app purchasing, um, which he hadn't done intentionally, and where he hadn't, you know, he wasn't being malicious. 
but it was coming up saying, do you want to buy this? And press your fingerprint. And it's like, okay, fingerprint done. You know, it was that easy. Done. Easy. Um, didn't need the password. And, and this, and this, by the way, had the, he is uh, flagged as a child and he's in my account and I'm the parent and I'm down as being the one to get authorization for purchases from. So even though all of that, those sort of checks were in place. You know, he's a child. He therefore shouldn't be buying stuff. There should, you know, that should be a given based on the fact that he's a child. Secondly, we've got the permission system in place so that if he tries to buy something, I have to give permission to say yes or no. Um, despite all of that, he was able to just bypass it all just by using a fingerprint because I guess it, would, it assumes that if the fingerprint's being used, it's me, which is crazy. Um, so they just, yeah, they refunded the whole lot and I got the money back over a few days. Uh, but it can be a oh, real problem. Good. Yeah, it can be a real, real problem. Yeah. Have have you, I know Apple came out with something, uh, I haven't tried it yet, but they now allow trial versions of apps. Yes. I yeah, I heard about this. Um, I haven't tried it all, but it's something that I guess another thing to watch out for or <laughs> to look for in apps coming out. I haven't even tried an app that I guess I could download as a trial version, but Apple now allows you to know if this app has been installed on this device ever before. Right. Um, it's a new property. So even if you uninstall it and reinstall it, uh, you'll be able to check, send something to the Apple server and you'll be able to check to see, has this app ever been installed? So that had to go in place, I guess, before the trial software thing is coming out now. But I'm curious to see That's cool. yeah. what apps are going to be using that. Yeah, they need, they've needed that for years. I mean, it's crazy that that was never the case. Um, you know, if you just, uh, it's a classic blocker of why people ended up, you know, not going into the Mac store and stuff with their desktop apps because they could, you had this crazy situation where you can go to the app, the developer's website and download a trial version, try it for a month or whatever, and then, you know, pay to unlock or whatever. Or if you went to the Mac store to get it, you have to pay immediately. Um, and so they were getting a lot of people that were still going to the developer site and downloading it from there because, they get the free trial. So it does seem like, it seems like it's weird that it took so long. It's as, it's as if there was an issue that it wasn't as simple as it sounds to offer a free trial. Um, and I don't understand what that issue could be because it does seem like it should be a really straightforward thing to do. Um, but, yeah. but maybe it's around that sort of thing. It's around proving, you know, somehow storing and proving the fact that they've installed it before or whatever. Um, but talking about uh, talking about App Store, the, the final part of Michael's um questions was around screenshots so he said um do we do fake do you use fake or real device screenshots so uh, i guess the question is it uh, might be regarding taking it taking the screenshot on a device versus in a simulator or is it sometimes they have a lot of drawing um, sometimes you'll see screenshots where it'll be a screenshot in a, a mock device and then a lot of text above yeah yeah uh, kind of showing there and i uh, i kind of like some of those um just because uh they they'll give me a little bit more information a lot of times I'll, I'll see a screenshot but it's not if i haven't used the app before i don't immediately understand uh, what that screen in the app is doing or how it's of some benefit to me to download the app because of this. But so giving a little bit of text description, I know Apple, it's kind of frowned on it in the past. I don't know if they still do of kind of modifying your screenshots to add extra stuff to it, but I kind of like it when it's a app I'm going to be spending money on and uh, to make sure I understand why I want to do this. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's like it's 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 selling, isn't it? It's just getting some additional promotional space and using the screenshots to do that sort of thing. And you tend to see it a lot for games um, and things like that. I screenshots have definitely got easier to do. I mean, with the I can't remember when the change was. I think it was last year. It might have been the year before where they introduced the media manager within iTunes Connect. Um, it was always a pain in the backside doing screenshots because you know you'd have to fire up. Um, you know, a iPhone seven or six or whatever it was at the time, six plus a six, um, a, a five size, you know, a four four S size um, to get the different three and a half, four inch, five, you know, whatever it is. Uh, that was a real pain in the backside. You know, building the app, I, I would end up building for the simulator. There was a bug at one point in the simulator, which I'm not, sure, I don't think it's there now, um, where there was a particular version of the simulator where if you did the um, command S to take a screenshot it would take it based on the scale on the screen, which was really frustrating. So it, rather than getting a one-to-one, you know, full-size image, if you've resized the simulator down and then did a screenshot, you would get the small screen. A smaller image. Yeah, which you'd then try and upload to iTunes Connect. It would say it's wrong. Um, but they really improved it with the media manager because what that allows you to do, obviously the iPhone X is different because the screen is different. But with the media manager, you can upload a, what is it? A 5.5, yeah, 5.5. A screenshot so a, a plus size screenshot and it will resize that down to all the other versions which is nice so you know you just do your three screens four screens whatever you're doing and then your 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 5.5 becomes your 4.7 and becomes your four and everything else they just they crop it and, and resize it for you which is not going to be you know completely accurate because there are slight differences between the screens in terms of the uh, times three and times two and the way that things get rendered but it's good enough um it's, it, it certainly makes the process a bit quicker. Um, but again, it's like that thing of approaching with the clients. And one of the questions I've got as we get to the point where you're publishing is what screens do you want shown? And it's, I, I got an app recently that got rejected for several reasons and had to get, jump through a few hoops. Um, I think we talked about it before, but one of them was about all the fact that the ti.media permissions uh, are all required. You know, you need to put in the music permission. You need to put in the... Uh, microphone and cameras and galleries i just load it up now in the in the ti xml file those things won't pop up unless you're asking for them unless you're doing something specific that accesses the music or whatever you're not going to get that permission popping up but the p list needs those entries in there because the titanium the ti.media namespace is accessing or has the capability of accessing those things and it's a it's a new thing that's come up with um ios ios 11 and uh, the new sdks um, so that got rejected through that. So I jumped through a few hoops and got all that sorted out. And then I got, it got rejected because the screenshot said demo image. It was a, a pano, <laughs> it was a pano 360 app. So it just showed 360 photos. Um, and the listing screen that I put in there had like demo image one, demo image two, and they rejected it. Um, and they just said, you know, your screenshots are invalid because they use the word demo. So I had to, it was really frustrating. So I had to sort of go into the app, rename <laughs> the images, redo the screenshots, resubmit. And I mean, it took like three or four submissions to get this thing through um, until finally they accepted it. And then that was that. Um, but yeah, you just come across these things. There's definitely things they don't like. I mean, there are obviously things you can look up in terms of the rules for screenshots. And there are don't things. mention Android. Yes, yeah. Don't mention other platforms. <laughs> yeah. Don't mention Android. Yeah, simple little things like that that you just think of really innocent things to say. Bang. I mean, I don't know what happens if your app uh, is a game that has an Android in it. <laughs> 
but you know, <laughs> hopefully they'd be reasonable. Yeah. But you never know with with Apple sometimes. Um, but yeah, it has yeah got- at least we're not in the days of uh, taking two weeks every time you submit. An oh my god. Update. Yeah, I mean, this was written. It's much better now. Yeah, the one I, I think by the time I'd gone through three or four rejections for different reasons, um, I think the demo account that was in there was wrong and that was causing a problem. Then there was the screenshot thing and then there was the P, well, the P list thing was first. Um, and that usually gets rejected before it actually goes to submission anyway. Um, but I think the whole process t- still took like four days, you know, even with multiple rejections. Whereas I've had, I've had a, a, an affiliate linking app that I did many, many years ago. And that was the only other app that got rejected. And that took six weeks um, <laughs> because it was like a week submission. And then it was rejected. And then it, and at the time, the the, the reasons were terrible. They just didn't really explain what was going on. You know, why is it being rejected? And so I just resubmitted the same binary. I literally resubmitted the same thing. Um, and I think at the time you could do that. You could actually resubmit the same binary. They don't let you know. You have to increment the build number. But you could just send the same thing back again. So I just did the same thing back. And again, another week went by and I got a different response. And it literally took like four or five weeks of submissions, four or five submissions, until I finally got someone that came back and said, we don't like the fact that you're you're uh, opening these links inside the app in a web view. That was it. It was a five-minute code change. Five-minute code change to change the code so I opened it externally in Safari. As soon as I did that, they accepted it the same day. It was so ridiculous. Um, yeah, I think that them... Changing the time on that kind of stuff, it was one of the best things they could have done. Oh, amazing, yeah. I mean, game I think, people. I think I had an app update that was same day. I think I submitted it at like 9.30 in the morning, and it was in the app store by about 4 o'clock, which is, you know, wow. unprecedented. <laughs> and it's it's weird, I mean, because I still tell people, you know, it's probably going to be a week or two weeks just just to to cover yourself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's, it's interesting, the whole app store process and, and, and the stuff you go through. I mean, I had the conversation today with someone where, and I have turned away apps recently with re- requests for stuff that's come through where they've been really, really simple apps. And I've just said, you know, they're not going to get accepted. You know, this is just going to get rejected because Apple are really funny about stuff like this. You know, if they think, if you're not doing push notifications, if you're not doing touch ID, face ID stuff, <coughs> excuse me, if you're not doing specific things on, the device that can only be on a device, you know, uh, in terms of a, a native app and not done through a web app, they could easily reject it and just say, just do it as a web app, especially these sort of apps that are really simple, you know, lists. Like I literally have, you know, requests the other day for somebody who wanted, you go into the app, you see a list of categories, you pick a category, you see a list of documents, you click a document, you read the document. I mean, that's just a website. You know, there's no, yeah. I was like, so that, you know, there's no login, there's no authorization, there's no push, there's no face ID, touch ID, there's no in-app purchasing. There's none of this stuff. Um, I just was like, there's 99% chance that they're going to reject this because it's basically, you're building a web app and you would be better off and cheaper and easier just to go and do it as a website and then make it mobile web compliant, um, you know. It's it's far too simple, and and you get the ones that say, "Oh, we want to take our website and put a wrap around it." It's like that's not going to work either. You know, they're going to turn that. They're going to they're going to turn off their network. Nothing's going to load. I know that with some apps, obviously, you you know, if it's using an API, it's not going to work if it's not on the network. But you, it will fail gracefully. It will. You'll still see the app. You'll still see the user interface. You'll still see some cache data, and it will say can't you know connect to network. But if you turn off the network and then nothing, you get a blank screen. That's gonna be turned off straight away they're not going to be happy about that so uh yeah it has definitely got easier in the end you'd end up developing an app get either rejected by apple and clients unhappy even though that's what they wanted so yes 
it's best to educate the client when it comes to that or turn down work, like you said, because sometimes, you know, if it's breaking a rule in the Apple store, it's not going to have a good ending. Exactly. Okay, so we've got another couple of subjects, but I think we could leave those to the next episode because they could be uh, a bit meatier and uh, it'll give us something to talk about in the next episode. Um, and that's to do with Hyperloop tricks and tips and working with other IDEs and some CLI tips if you're okay to uh, finish up and then we can move that stuff into the next episode. That sounds good. I think we'll have a lot of uh, of good things for both of those topics. So. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay, um, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for listening and tune in next time for episode seven where we'll be covering more listener topics and feedback that we've had through Twitter. Thanks for your time, Brenton. Thank you. See ya.